So if you're there and you're able, would you please stand with me now out of respect for the reading of God's word. John chapter 2, beginning in verse number 13. The Passover of of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple, and he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who stole the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Thank you. You may be seated. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Dear Father, Lord, God, as we're looking at this passage of Jesus coming to his temple, Lord, we see the zeal that he had for your house. Lord, we see the zeal that he had for worship. Lord, now as we meet together, Lord, as this body of believers, God, as this church, Lord, as your temple, Lord, I pray that here true worship would be done. Lord, that there would be true love for you and true glory towards you, Lord. God, I pray that you would be with those here, Lord, as I speak, that your spirit would be with us. God, that as we look at this passage, you would open our eyes to see what you have for us today. Lord, I ask all of this in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now as we begin today, I would like to ask you a question. What comes to mind when you hear the term no brand? Or maybe great value? Maybe generic? Well, unless you absolutely love low-quality things, these terms probably don't excite you. Maybe when you were young, and you were grocery shopping with your mom, you were in the cereal aisle, and there you saw the Fruit Loops, you saw the Lucky Charms, the Cocoa Pebbles, the Cinnamon Toast Crunch, whatever it was, and you said, Mom, I want the cereal, the cereal from the commercials. But of course, your mom probably told you, Don't, we have cereal at home. But of course, you probably didn't want the cereal at home, Right? the fruit circles, the cocoa rocks. Why? Why didn't you want these? Because you wanted the real thing. You didn't want the imitation. You wanted the real thing. Well, when we look at this passage here, in our story, we have two temples. One of these temples had become like the no-brand temple. It was supposed to be the real thing, but it left the people wanting more. It was lacking something. 
Though it was supposed to be the real thing, it had become the no-brand temple. The temple at this time was a beautiful thing to look at. It had recently been refurbished by Herod the Great. Everyone who passed by, when they saw this temple, they were amazed by the architecture, by the stone and the gold. But when we look at this passage, let me describe to you the truest temple. Two arms, two legs, flesh and bone. You see, the truest temple in this passage that we see today is Jesus Christ and his body. In the last chapter, we read about the eternal word of God, God with God, the Son with the Father who took on flesh and he dwelt among his people. The Bible says that he tabernacled among us. The tabernacle had been built by Moses to be a place where God's covenant presence would dwell. Later, as they go into the promised land, they had hopes that a more permanent temple would be built. If you remember, King David wished to build a house for God. But the Lord told him that while he wouldn't build a temple, his son would build a temple. And that doesn't stop at the temple that Solomon built. But ultimately, in David's greatest son, Jesus Christ, the truest temple will come to God's people. And God's graciousness doesn't stop there when it comes to temples. If we were to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, it says, So then you, Gentile believers, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, the temple building that they saw, it was impressive. But that old covenant temple points towards something far greater. It points to the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, and to his mystical body, his church. And looking at this passage today, we see three things that distinguish the true temple of God from the imitation temple. The first thing that we see is that the true temple of God is for God. The true temple of God is for God. Look with me again at Jesus' words in verses 16 and 17. Jesus comes to them and he says, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples, upon seeing this, they remember that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. In other Gospels, we read about Jesus cleansing the temple, possibly a second time towards the end of his ministry. Whether there are two different times of cleansing the temple, or whether this is one cleansing that John has moved towards the front of the story for thematic reasons, which could be possible, Malachi, the prophet, prophesies about Jesus coming to the temple. If you were to take your Bibles and look to Malachi chapter 3, in verses 1 through 4, there is a prophecy speaking about Jesus coming to this temple. He prophesies years before, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. You see, God had a specific use for his temple. It wasn't a house that could just be used for anything. The temple was first and foremost for God. It was supposed to be a house for God. It was supposed to be where he dwelt among his people. It was supposed to be where worship towards him was done. It was supposed to be where his name dwelt. Jeremiah asks, Has this house, which is called by my name, become to you like a den of robbers? See, God takes his name very seriously. And when his people were given a house that bore the name of God, they didn't use it for God. But rather, though it was supposed to be called by his name, they made it a den of robbers in their eyes. Jesus will later pronounce this judgment on the temple and call it a den of robbers, for they had taken God's name in vain. And what happens when God's name is taken in vain? What happens when the foreigner comes to Jerusalem and sees this mockery of God's temple? Well, what happens is God's name is not glorified. What happens is that the worship the Father seeks is not being done. This is the purpose of Jesus' purifying work. As we saw there in Malachi, the purpose of that purifying and cleansing was so that righteous offerings would be offered to the Lord. And so that pleasing worship would be made to the Lord. Jesus accomplishes this. You see, through Jesus Christ, the temple, the ultimate and true temple, pleasing and glory comes to the Father. It's amazing that everywhere Jesus went, he was doing temple things. He was meeting people. He was forgiving their sins. He was making those who were unclean become clean. He was like a walking, moving temple going throughout the people. And his church has the same purpose. You see, the temple, the true temple, Jesus Christ, was moving throughout the people, blessing them. And no matter what he did, everything he said, everything he did glorified God. It says here that he had a zeal for God's house. And as followers of Christ, we too should have a zeal for God's house. Now, there are many ways that we can apply this to our lives. I think one thing we must remember is that if we are God's temple, then a zeal for God's house means a zeal for one another. If you remember in the book of Corinthians, Paul, he talks about using our bodies for holiness because we are the temple. Many of us are familiar with this, knowing that our body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. But he also talks about the corporate body as a whole, being the temple of God. He says, do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, 
God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you, plural, are that temple. You see, Jesus, he had a zeal for God's house. And if we have a zeal for God's house, then we will have a zeal for each other. In that passage that we just read from Paul, he's talking about divisions in the church as being like destruction on God's house. If we hurt one another, we are hurting the temple. If there are divisions between us, then there's divisions within God's house. If we slander each other with our words, if we backbite, if we gossip about each other, if we leave problems between each other undealt with, then the Bible talks about that as being destroying the temple. You see, the relationship that we have with each other, it's not just friends with similar interests, but this is the temple of God. We are members of God's house. If there's anything between you and another member of the church, it must be dealt with. It's not just friends fighting, but it's destruction in God's house. You see, just like Jesus had a zeal for his father's house, so should we. We should have zeal for the Lord's house by having zeal for one another. Because what ultimately happens when we love one another the way we should when we have zeal for each other, what happens is we glorify God in his temple. You see, the temple is for God. And we glorify his temple by being like Jesus, having a zeal for the temple and having a zeal for one another and loving one another. We see in this passage that the true temple is first and foremost for God. But looking at this passage, we also see that the true temple is for all. Second, the true temple is for all. Look again with me at verses 14 and 15 in our text. Here it says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, And overturned their tables. Now, quickly, I should say something about this whip of cords. Uh, Perhaps you've never even read this section before, and you're thinking to yourself, did Jesus just make a weapon? To some, it may look very surprising, but we should know that in this temple area, there were no weapons allowed. Uh, When it says a whip of cords, this could possibly be made out of ropes, string, or even leaves sitting around. The language being used describes a sort of makeshift makeshift whip that even a child could use when herding out animals. You see, this passage, while it does correct the false view that Jesus was always soft-spoken and gentle, it does not show us that Jesus was in any way unjustly violent, or that Jesus was in any way sinful, but it does show us that Jesus had a zeal for God's temple. Now, why did he do this? And how does this show us that Jesus, or that the temple is for all? Well, during the Passover, hundreds of thousands of people are coming from all over. Now, it's estimated that around this time, During the Passover, around 3 million people would be coming to Jerusalem. There are tons of people here, and many of them are traveling from far distances. So, in order to 
help the people who are coming. You can imagine that traveling and bringing your own animal would be very difficult to do. So in order to supply animals for those who are traveling, animals are being sold. And in order to go through the logistics of money issues, you have money changers. They're swapping out the foreign currency, and they're giving the temple currency that's accepted. So there are a lot of things that have to be done. And the issue is not that they're being done, but where they're being done. You see, they were not done with an understanding that the temple was for all. These things were done inside of the temple. No, not in the holy place. These things weren't done in the court where the priests would go. They weren't going in the court of Israel. They weren't going or going on in the court of the women. But rather, all of this was going on in the outer court, the large court of the Gentiles. You see, all of this was happening inside the temple where the Gentiles were supposed to worship. Now I wonder if you've ever been to a place here in Korea called Gwangjang Market. I don't know if you've been there. It's a really big traditional market in Seoul. In fact, if you've been to any of the traditional markets in Korea, you may get a sense of what I really don't like. I really don't enjoy the traditional markets. I know you can get great deals there. I'm sure the food is wonderful, and I'm sure that the people there are nice, and it's a great experience. But whenever I go to the traditional markets, there's just so many people, and everybody is bumping into each other, and it's so loud. Everybody is calling over other people. They're yelling out prices. They're giving people samples. There are so many smells with all the different foods. It's utter chaos. Whenever I go to the traditional market, I can't even think. I can't imagine that being the place that I'm expected to pray and worship. Can you imagine traveling as a Gentile to Israel to worship the God that you've heard of and the God that you love and coming to your place of worship and it being like Guangzhou Market, like a traditional market with noise and people and all of this chaos. To make things even worse, it appears that they were overcharging the people who were going there. It's like if you go to a movie theater or to an amusement park and they know that you're not going to go anywhere else. So something that would be $1 or $2 becomes $5 and $6, about like magic. Well, that's what's going on here. Not only are they robbing people of money, but they're robbing people of worship. Amongst all of this chaos, amongst all of this madness, still Jesus comes to purify. The Lord comes to his temple like a refiner in a fuller soap, ready to purify it like silver. Now, how does Jesus, the true temple, fix this? How does this imitation temple become a true temple for worship? Isaiah chapter 56 prophesies about this. Isaiah 56 verses 6 and 7 says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices 
will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Using old covenant imagery, he's saying that one day, all people, Gentiles included, will be brought to the house of God, and it will be a house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus, in the other Gospels, quotes this when he comes to the temple. He says, My house shall be called a or my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. But Jesus will purify this too. You see, just as this temple was intended to be for God, they had made it for themselves. And just as this temple was intended to be for all, they again had made it for themselves. But once again, Jesus is the true temple. And Jesus is the true temple for all. Years ago, God made a promise to Abraham. He told Abraham that he would make his name great, that from him would come a great nation, and that one day all the nations, all the families of the world would be blessed. Paul tells us later in Galatians that this promise is fulfilled in Christ, and that through faith in Christ, the Gentiles are blessed, and that the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles by faith in Christ. How amazing it is that Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's speaking about his resurrection. And if you remember that when Jesus is resurrected, and when Jesus ascends to his throne in heaven, and when the gospel goes out, all of a sudden, the nations begin to worship the God of Israel like never before. Years later, here we are in this church in Korea. We have Koreans, we have Americans, we have South Africans, we have Scottish, we have Irish. At other times, we've had Russians in here, we've had Indians in here. You see, when the gospel goes out, it goes out to all, and it touches all, and it speaks to all, and it changes all because Christ, the true temple, is for all people. And we, as a church, we must also remember that this temple, this body of believers, is for all people. Let there be no divisions within this temple. Let us remember that from the oldest to the youngest, from the richest to the poorest, this temple is for all people. When people come to visit and to see the worship that we have here, I hope they see that this temple is for all people, that none can say Christ is not for me, but Christ truly is for all people. There is no distinction that should be made. However, when we look at this passage, there is one specific distinction that we see about who Christ entrusts himself to, who is accepted into this true temple. Look with me at verses 23 and 25, a very surprising passage. It says, Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. It needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see, though it's said that they believed, it says that they believed when they saw the signs. Their faith 
was a superficial faith. Their faith had no roots. Their faith was short-lived. Eventually, when Jesus is taken, eventually when Jesus starts saying things that surprise them, or when Jesus starts saying things about his ministry that they didn't expect from the Messiah, they would leave because their faith was not in him. Their faith was in the miracles that they saw. Their faith was in this amazing authority that this man shown in the temple. But ultimately, when we come to this temple by faith, the faith must be in Christ. You see, just as Christ is the true temple for all people, we must remember that he only entrusts himself to those with faith in him. It is by faith and faith alone that we come to this true temple. It is by faith that we become a part of this temple. And it is by faith that we become that true temple that God has built, that worships and loves the Lord. But even still, let us remember that none of that has anything to do with our age, our looks, what nation we're from, what language we speak. For Christ is truly for all. All who come to Christ as the true temple are not distracted with chaos. There are no extra burdens placed on them like we see in our passage. But instead, Christ, with his arms open wide, welcomes all people. We see from this passage that the true temple is first and foremost for God. It is for God. It is for all. And now let us look and see how the true temple, Christ, is forever. For God, for all, forever. You see, before the temple, there was a tabernacle. God instructed Moses to build this portable tent that they could carry around, that they could deconstruct and put back up again. And they had hopes that one day something more permanent would be built. Well, eventually, a temple was built. But as we look through the Old Testament, maybe it wasn't as permanent as they would have wanted it to be. Though God's presence would dwell there, God would also take his presence away and his blessing away if Israel turned their back on him. Though that, or that temple there was beautiful, it could be destroyed by its enemies. In fact, if you were to go to Israel now and try to find the temple that we see in this passage, you would find it destroyed. That temple was not permanent. It was not built to last forever. But we have a better temple. We have a temple from which God's presence will never depart. We have a temple that can never be destroyed. Look with me again at our passage in verses 19 through 22. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture in the word that Jesus had spoken. Remember again in chapter 1 when John tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us like a tabernacle that had come down from heaven to be with us. 
just as you were to see the glory of God in the tabernacle of Moses. They saw the glory of God in a far greater way in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's amazing that though our sin casts us away from the presence of God, God in his kindness brings his presence to us. And all those who come to him by faith, trusting him, will dwell in that presence for all eternity. The disciples understood this when they saw the resurrection of Jesus. You see, when they saw Christ in the flesh, they saw a glory. But it was nothing compared to the glory that they saw in the resurrected Jesus. That's when this finally hit home in their minds. Earlier we were reading, or we were singing the Psalm 69. And maybe when we were singing, you thought, this psalm is really dark. Maybe you were looking at the words, thinking about like this, there's mud and there's mire and the singer is singing about troubles that I've never felt before. Well, if you remember while we were singing, part of the lyrics were, zeal for your house consumes me. You see, that psalm that we were singing was a song about Christ. Those words about these enemies surrounding me, these people accusing me without a cause, as if death is coming upon the one singing, that was ultimately about Jesus. Jesus had a zeal for God's house, and he was hated for it. Enemies surround him. People without a cause are accusing him. Death is surrounding him. He's on the cross. He's killed, and he's put in a grave. But if you were to go back in Psalm 69, you would see the deliverance comes to the one who's singing. You see, Jesus did not stay in the grave, but rather three days later, he was delivered from the grave. He was resurrected. And the Bible tells us that we share in his resurrection, that when death comes for us, though we die, we die in Christ. And if we die in Christ, then we will be resurrected in Christ. The Bible tells us that the hope of the Christian is a new heavens and a new earth. If you were to look in Revelation 20, 21, it talks about this new earth, and it talks about a new heaven, and it talks about a new Jerusalem that comes down like a bride that is adorned for her husband, a beautiful new Jerusalem. But it also says that in that new Jerusalem, there is no temple. It says that the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This is everything that that temple was pointing towards. No amount of stone and gold and beautiful architecture could point to something so beautiful as this the forever and eternal presence of God with his people. And this is the resurrection that we have to look forward to. You've, pre- you've probably read in the Psalms. In fact, if you look at our call to worship today, we, we talked about the hope of dwelling in the presence of the Lord forever, to dwell in the house of the Lord for all eternity. And I'm sure that's the desire for all of us, to be with our Creator, to be with the one that we love, to be free of sin, 
to have our tears wiped away from our eyes and to be told that death and sin and darkness will forever be gone and that from this point on in all eternity, God will be with his people and it will be perfect. A resurrection with a new heavens and a new earth. The presence of God for all eternity. A temple that is for God, for all, and forever. In closing, I want you to think of the scene in this passage. There's chaos everywhere. There's people coming from far and wide, hoping to find the presence of God, hoping to find true worship, but instead finding a chaotic and corrupt marketplace. But in all of this chaos, there is a true temple there. God in his kindness has brought his presence to his people. The true temple is here in this passage, but it doesn't have stone, it doesn't have pillars and gold, but instead it has arms and legs, flesh and bone. In the new heavens and in the new earth, we won't get a generic imitation of the temple of God. There won't be a no-brand presence of the Lord. There won't be anything like that. But instead, we will have the true temple. In the new creation, we will look upon the body of the resurrected Christ. We will be able to touch him. He will be able to physically wipe the tears away from our eyes. We will be able to hug the Savior who gave his life for us and loved us and loves us now. One day, we will be in the resurrection with the true temple where God is glorified. The true temple for all people. We will be with the true temple which will never be destroyed, where God's presence will never leave. It'll be a true temple forever, for eternity. Let us look forward to this temple. As Christians, let us look forward to the resurrection Trusting that even as we relate to that Psalm 69, even as we relate to pain and suffering, and as death comes upon us in this life, let us also remember how that psalm ends, and that there is deliverance, and that ultimately there is a resurrection. Would you join me in prayer? Dear Father, Lord, God, we want to thank you for sending your Son. Lord, we want to thank you for bringing your presence towards us. Lord, no matter how much we ran from you, Lord, no matter how much in our sin we hated you and wanted nothing to do with you, God, in your love, you sent your Son, and you sent your Spirit, and you brought your presence to us. Lord, and you changed us to love you. God, we ask that you would continually, continuously change us to love you more and more every day. God, we pray that you would remind us of this future presence in a greater way that we will have with you in the resurrection. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.